Judges chapter 10. After Abimelech, there rose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. So last week, we saw this character Abimelech rise to power. And you remember Abimelech, he was sort of an illegitimate son of Gideon. He was the son of a concubine. And if you recall, Abimelech, he, he gathered together a group of, of worthless and reckless men, sort of a, a little mercenary squad, and he gathers up all 70 of his brothers, and one by one he executes them. He, he commits fratricide on this, on this grand scale, and we find him attempting to make himself king. And things went well for a while, but eventually... The, the fickle people who, who supported his rebellion, they found somebody else that they liked better. And so Abimelech, his subjects turned on him. So Abimelech ends up going to war against his subjects and eventually remember a lady throws a rock down from a tower and hits him in the head. And Abimelech says to his servant, stab me. I want you to kill me. I don't want it to be said that a woman killed me. And that, the story just sort of ends there, and that was it. And um, this week, we pick up the text, and we're introduced to our next judge, this man named Tola. And we don't really learn a lot about Tola. We see that his dad's name was Pua, his granddad's name was Dodo, he was from the tribe of Issachar. We learned that he lived in a town called Shamir, and we don't really know anything about that town. In fact, as of yet, that town hasn't been discovered. Archaeologists don't even know where the city was. So basically, we learn that this man, he was born, he lived, he served God, and he died. We don't have a lot of information, right? And I was thinking about that, that he, that he was born, that he lived, that he served God, and then he died. And I think that that's enough, isn't it? It's enough to have recorded about you when you're dead and gone, when you finally buy the farm, that you serve God faithfully, and then you died. <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, He's talking about praying for our leaders, and he says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And Paul will later go on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4, 11, and he says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. What, what, Paul is saying to the church here is, look, you don't have to be called to the limelight. You don't have to live a big, grand, exciting life where, where everybody's looking at you all the time. Not all of us are going to have Reader's Digest stories written about us. 
We're not all going to have biographies written about us after we die. In fact, the overwhelming majority of us won't, will we? Most of us are going to die and we'll kind of fade into obscurity. And our reward, our recognition, it won't come on this side of eternity. Our recognition for our faithfulness will come when we stand before the Lord. Our recognition comes when we hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? That's our reward for all eternity. And frankly, I think that's a much better reward, isn't it? Fame and fortune, they fade away, don't they? Right? The spotlight, it grows dim eventually, doesn't it? But our reward is eternal. And I think that that should serve as a good reminder to each one of us. Be faithful to what the Lord has called you to. Be faithful and just keep plugging away. Paul tells the church in Galatia, he says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul tells the church there, he says, look, don't grow weary in doing good. You know, nobody else might see. You might not be getting any recognition from anybody else for your service to the Lord, but God sees, and he's the rewarder. Lastly, before we move on to the next judge, I want to share this. Yeah, I heard this many years ago. I heard John Corson do a Bible study on this verse. And it was very cool, and it kind of stuck in my mind, so I researched it a little bit. And you know, we read these verses, these two short verses, and really, it seems like there's not a lot there. We read, okay, there's this guy Tola, his grandpa was Dota, he, he, let's move on, let's, let's get to the rest of the story. But there's actually something really cool here if you'll allow me a few minutes to sort of to break it down for you and to articulate it, right? If you have been listening to my teaching, my preaching for any amount of time, you know that I love all the typology in the Old Testament. And every time I start to talk about typology, I see about half of you get excited and start taking notes and the other half of your eyes just sort of glaze over. And like, so that's where we are. You can get your pen out, or you can just relax for a couple minutes, and I'll alert you when we're done. Um, a type in Scripture is sort of like foreshadowing something prophetically. A type is foreshadowing through actual living people and events. An example of that would be when Abraham sacrificed him. And we see that that was sort of a... A, a type or a, a foreshadowing, a picture of God the Father when he would take Jesus and sacrifice him at Calvary. Or another prominent type in the Old Testament is Jonah. Jesus talks about that. Just how Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. So the Son of Man was going to be buried in the ground for three days. 
So those, that's sort of what, what typology is. And um, the Old Testament, it is filled with typology. It's been said that for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. And here in Judges chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we see a, a pretty interesting, a pretty cool type or, or foreshadowing of Jesus. So the judge that we're talking about this morning is this fellow named Tola. And Tola is sort of the nickname, the shortening of the name Tolath. And so we see this Tolath, he arose to save Israel. He arose to save the people of God. And some translations, if you have an older translation like the King James, it says that he arose to defend Israel. And here's why this is interesting to me. This word toloth, anybody, are you guys familiar with this? You know what that word means? Toloth means worm. Specifically, not just any worm, it's a special worm. Toloth was a, a particular species of worm that the people used to make red dye. Right? In those days, you couldn't just run over to Joanne Fabric and buy some dye. If you wanted to dye something, if you wanted to, 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 to dye it red, you would have to gather up all these little worms. You'd go you'd out and harvest them, and you'd put them in a little bowl, and you'd take a, a grinder, and you'd grind all these worms into a paste. And you got this big, bushy, gross, red, gutty paste, and they would take a little water and they would make it all, you know, a bucket of liquid. And then they would take the fabric in it and they would soak it in it. And it would come out red, right? That's how they dyed their clothes. So consequently, the Hebrew word for crimson, right? This particular shade of red is also the word tolaf, which is derived from this word worm that the color came from. You guys following me so far? Okay. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. Now you remember the Psalm chapter 22 is one of the great messianic psalms, right? It's one of the great psalms that, that foretells the, the death of the Messiah. And as you go through Psalm chapter 22, it's very detailed. It's very descriptive. Remember verse one, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've undoubtedly heard that expression, right? As Jesus hung there, dying on the cross, at the very end of his ordeal, remember, it says that he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think, in part, he cries that out, expressing the, the pain and the anguish and the torment that he's going through there on the cross. But also, in part, I think, he's referring the disciples back to this passage, back to Psalm 22. Because remember, in those days, in the original text, 
There were no chapter and verse divisions, right? Those were added later for our convenience, right? Chapters and verses were added later to make it easier for us to, to locate and, and, and access certain sections of scripture. But back then they didn't have that. So if you wanted to recall a particular psalm, you would just recite the first line of that psalm. And so Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In essence, Jesus cries out, Psalm 22. He's saying, remember. Remember what the psalm says. Remember that the suffering that I'm going through, this was always the plan. Jesus says, remember I told you about my suffering. I, I told you I was going to die. I foretold this crucifixion. It has always been the plan of God for the salvation of lost men for me to go to the cross. There is no other way by which lost men might be saved. So anyway, Psalm 22 is this beautiful messianic psalm describing the Lord's suffering on the cross. And I encourage you to read through it later. It talks about how, how the Lord would be mocked, how people would say, oh, if he really is who he says he is, let him save himself. It talks about how none of his bones would be broken. It talks about how his hands and his feet would be pierced, and that his garments would be divided, and they would cast lots for his clothing. Very clearly a reference to Jesus, no question about it. But I want to bring your attention to verse 6. Right? And this verse 6 is prophetically spoken from the mouth of the Messiah while he's on the cross. And he says, I am a worm and not a man. Sort of an odd thing to say, isn't it? I'm a kangaroo and not a man. Right? It's just, it's just kind of weird. As it happens, the Hebrew word David uses for worm here isn't the typical word for worm. This word is, you guessed it, tolaf. Now let me tell you a couple more interesting things about this crimson worm. When the female is going to reproduce, they find a tree or a fence post, or something of that nature. And they climb up the tree, and they attach themselves to the tree. And they attach themselves so firmly that if you try to remove the worm, it actually tears the body apart. And so they attach themselves to the tree. And then the, the larvae begin to hatch. And what they do is they stay inside of the host worm consuming its flesh and, and drinking its blood until eventually the, the larvae burst forth and the little, the, little, the little worms, they pop out red, covered in the blood of the worm that birthed them. So these newborn babies, they crawl away but here's what's interesting. After this is all said and done, where this worm was attached to the tree, there's a, there's a scarlet crimson stain left on that wood. 
But remember, this is taking place in the Middle East where this hot sun is beating down. And after about three days of this scarlet stain, this blood being, being on this wood and this hot sun beating down, after three days, that blood turns white and disintegrates and whoosh, blows away. That's interesting, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but once it's explained, the, the analogy was pretty obvious to me. Being attached to the tree, covering its children in its blood. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, toloth, they will become like wool. That red spot on the tree, after three days turning white and dissolving, that's a picture of our sins nailed there on the cross with Jesus. It's a picture of how he bore our sins, and now they're removed. Though they were crimson, now they're as white as wool. And so this toli we're looking at this morning in Judges chapter 10, what does it say? He arose. It's an interesting word choice in light of all this, I think. It says that he arose. This guy whose name is so symbolic, whose name is so packed with meaning. And, and what did he arise for? To save and to defend Israel, to defend and save the people of God. Here's why that's interesting. Jesus, our Toloth, he also rose, did he not? And John writes in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John says, look, I'm writing these things. I'm writing this book to you to help you guys stop sinning. He says, now that you're Christians, now that you're children of God, you need to stop engaging in that old sinful lifestyle. He says, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer. We have a defense eternity, attorney. We have, a, we have a defender. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus rose from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's our advocate. He's our defender. When we sin, when we stumble, when we, when we, when we fall, it says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It says that when we fail, when we mess up, he goes before the Lord and he accuses us day and night. This constant, ongoing accusation. Apparently, right, it's sort of like the book of Job. 
right? Satan's going in front of the Lord and saying, look, see what he did? Look at that. She's not really a Christian. He's not really a follower. He doesn't care about you. And Jesus says, um, that sin that you're talking about, that was paid for. I paid the penalty for that sin on the cross of Calvary. It's gone. It was like scarlet, but now it is white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Satan brings condemnation and the Lord defends us. I hope you understand the difference between condemnation and conviction of sin. Right, because in a way they're similar, right? Both conviction of sin and condemnation, right, they're, they're the, the result of our sins. Both come about because we failed. Both come about because we have fallen short of God's standard for our lives. But condemnation says, you're a failure. You're unworthy. You're unlovable. You're a, you're a loser. You're, you're probably not really even a Christian. How can anyone love you, let alone God? You're worthless. Give up. Go, go crawl in a hole and die. Where conviction says, look, you've sinned. You screwed up. And even though you are unworthy, the one who is worthy died to pay the penalty for your sins. Conviction says, now get up. Call in the name of the Lord, repent, and don't do that thing anymore. Right? There's a major difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation drives us away from the presence of God. Conviction drives us into his presence. Let me draw you back to the last line of Psalm 22. The last line of the last verse, actually. It says, he has done it. In Hebrew, the implication is, he has finished it. Remember Jesus' last words on the cross? He looks up and he cries out in Greek, tetelestai, it is finished. He's saying, the sacrifice is complete. Sins are paid for. Remember the verse we just looked at in 1 John chapter 2? Let me read it again and read verse 2 as well. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the, the payment for our sins. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world. Jesus paid the penalty for all of creation when he died there on that wooden cross at Calvary. He paid the penalty for all our sins. And then he cries out to Telestai. It is finished. 
the work has been done. Humanity has been rescued. That's why John writes in John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Salvation, redemption, the the forgiveness of sins is freely available now to anyone who wants it. Now, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. Well, actually, I do. All of us need to hear that this morning. We all need to be constantly reminded of that. But specifically, maybe you need to hear this message this morning, that God loves you, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you can be forgiven. And he rose again on the third day to prove that his payment was accepted by God the Father. And that that condemnation that you feel, that's the enemy whispering lies in your ear. You're unworthy. You're unloved. You're unaccepted. Those are lies whispered by Satan, the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. Our tola, our defender, our savior, Jesus Christ is telling you, you're worthy, you're loved, you were accepted by God. Verse three, we're moving right along, aren't we? After him arose Jared the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called have off Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried and come on. Again, this is another judge that we know very little about. We see that he had 30 sons, so I assume, anyway, that he had multiple wives. Um, says that they all rode donkeys. Donkeys were sort of the, the noble mount in those days, as we've mentioned before, the rich you know, those who had power and authority, kings and rulers, princes, they're the ones who rode donkeys. Horses were sort of considered uncouth if it wasn't a time of war. So we learned that he, that he has 30 sons who ride 30 donkeys, and they rule over 30 cities in this region of Gilead. From here, all we can do is make assumptions, right? It's very likely that he was wealthy, that he had many wives, and he had sons who all had royal rides, He had authority. His sons ruled through his authority over this whole region. But we don't know much else. We don't know if he was godly. We don't know if he did a good job. We just know that he ruled for 22 years and then he died. And then as we move into verse 6, we see the cycle again of God raising up judges and the people follow the Lord and the judge dies and the people fall away. It says in verse 6, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It's the same old story again, isn't it? The same thing that we've been seeing over and over again in our study in Judges. It's the same thing we... Sadly, experience over and over again in our own life sometimes. And we see going on in the lives of people around us. Remember, idolatry isn't just 
bowing down to some little golden statue. Idolatry in its truest sense is allowing anything to take the place of primacy in your life. It's allowing anything to become more important to us than the living God. You know, so here's what happens. We, we come to the Lord, we get right with God, and things are going okay, we're, we're doing good, and then we start to get distracted. And then we start to follow after those distractions. And those things that we're following after, eventually they begin to usurp God's authority in our lives. They begin to try to take the throne of God in our lives. And eventually, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves completely given over to those things and simply playing lip service to the Lord. We, we find ourselves giving over to idolatry and still going through the motions with God. And that's what we see here. The people, they got sucked back into this idol worship. It says they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they were crushed and oppressed and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. Again, here we see the same pattern. And remember, we don't know the full story. We don't know if there had been some military conquest, whether Jair had, had delivered the people from a previous oppression, but we know that he had been leading the people for 22 years. And as soon as he was gone, as soon as no one's looking, what do they do? They go right back to idolatry. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. So it says the Lord turned them over to the Philistines to be disciplined. Right? And the Philistines have been mentioned previously in Scripture, but they haven't really taken a, a place of prominence yet. But from this point on, for the next few centuries, the Philistines become the, the major adversaries of the Israelites. And we're going to see that starting as we move through the latter half of Judges and the first and second Samuel and the first and second Kings, right? There, there's this constant animosity between the Philistines and the Israelites, and the Philistines, they were an interesting people in that they weren't from the region. They showed up and that whole region there is called the Levant. Israel, Samaria, all that area. And they showed up in the Levant sometime around or before the 12th century BC. But, but we know from history and, and more recently from genetic studies that the Philistines were actually Greek. They migrated from Greece to this region. And sort of a, a further point of trivia, Philistine in Greek is Philistinoi, which was transliterated into Latin as, anybody know? Palestine. So in 135 AD, 
right? The Jews, after 70 AD, after the temple was destroyed, after most of the Jews were deported, there was still this, this rebellion going on in Israel. And so in 135, Roman Emperor Hadrian, he came in and he, and he crushed this last Jewish revolt. And when he crushed this last Jewish revolt, he changed the name of Israel to Palestine. And he did it on purpose. He changed the name of Israel to Israel's ancestral enemies, sort of as a, a final insult to the Jews. He changed the name to Palestine to erase the name of Israel from, from people's memory, to erase the name of Israel from history. Now, this is ironic to me a little bit, because before this morning, how many of you guys have heard the name Hadrian? Two, right? Not very many. How many of you guys have heard the name Israel? All of us, right? It didn't work very well for him. Anyway, the Lord turned the people over to be disciplined by the Philistines as well as the Ammonites. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the veils. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mayanites who oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. The Lord says, look, I saved you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites. Seven different times, the Lord notes. Seven different people groups. And I think that that's probably symbolic. I don't know for sure. But in scripture, seven is often the, the number of perfection or the number of completion. And it's like the Lord says, look, you cried out to me seven times and I delivered you seven times and you've forsaken me and served other gods seven times. He says, therefore, I will save you no more. I don't think that the Lord is saying that they ran out of chances, that they used up all their chances. In fact, I know that isn't what he is saying because of what happens in the next few verses. And because it goes against the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, right? The issue here, I believe, is that the people, as they're repenting here, it's a false repentance. The people here, apparently, they weren't sorry for sinning against the Lord. They weren't sorry for forsaking the Lord. They weren't sorry for worshiping these, these false gods. They were sorry for getting caught. Right? They were sorry for the punishment that they were enduring. They were sorry for their suffering. Now, any of you guys who are raising children, you understand this principle all too well, right? Your kids, they do something they're not supposed to do, and you put them on restriction. Say, all right, well, here's the consequence. You don't get your Xbox for the next month. 
Right? They're sorry. They're brokenhearted. But not because they disobeyed. They're sorry over the consequences of their disobedience. And it seems like at this point, this is where the heart of the people were. There was no contrition. There was no sorrow. There was no genuine brokenheartedness over sin. David says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says the Lord, he's not looking for just words. He's looking for people whose hearts are broken before him over their sin. He says, oh God, you will not despise those people. The Lord says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse two, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, Isaiah says, the Lord isn't interested in people who, who simply pay lip service to their sin. He's looking for people whose, whose hearts are broken, people who are, who are humbled by their sin, people who hate their sin. He says in verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. It's been said that all religions, all gods, are pretty much equal until you really need them, right? As long as you don't really need help from your false god, as long as you don't need his power or provision or comfort or intervention or healing or salvation, when things are good, they're all pretty much the same. They all pretty much do the same thing. But when you need a real God, that's when you find out that your false gods are cheap and worthless and powerless to save you. And the Lord says, look, you guys want to serve Chemosh and Molech and Baal and Ashereth? Cool. Have at it, he says. Go serve them. Let them deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. See what they can do for you. And it seems like something in the Lord's response here stirred the hearts of the people. Right? It seems like the spirit moved among the people. And we don't know if this change was instant or if it transpired over a period of time, but the people seem to have had a change of heart. And verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The people, they say, God, we've sinned. You're right. Do whatever you think is best. We trust you, Lord. Just deliver us. And it says, and they put away their false gods. And here in these two verses, I think we see three characteristics of genuine repentance. 
Number one, we see confession. They, conf- they, they confess their sins to the Lord. They say, Lord, we, we're, we're guilty. Lord, we have broken your statutes. Lord, we've broken your laws. Lord, we have sinned against you, and we're sorry. We're brokenhearted over it. Second, we see submission. They say, Lord, do whatever you think is best. We recognize that we've sinned, that we've messed up. Clearly, we can't run our own lives, they say. You lead us. You guide us. You do with our lives what you think is best. We submit ourselves to your will, God. Thirdly, we see destruction. It says they put away their false gods. Now, we in English, we read that verse. It says they put away their false gods. And to us, it seems like, oh, they just opened the dresser and tucked them underneath a pair of pants, kind of put it out of sight. And very often, that's what we do with our idols, isn't it? That's what we do with the sin in our lives, isn't it? We repent, and then we take our sin and we sort of put it out of sight. We just hide it away. We sort of put it in storage. But here's the issue with just kind of putting your idols in storage, After a while, they start to call out to us, don't they? Here I am. I'm over here. They call out to us. They they call us back to that, that seductive embrace. But this isn't what the people here did. This phrase to put away in Hebrew, it means to destroy, to come to an end. Or it can be translated to rebel against. And I like that last one, frankly. I like the idea that we are rebelling against our old nature. I like the idea that we were rebelling against those things that would seek to to bring us back to bondage again. We're rebelling against those things that, that once held us captive. True repentance isn't saying I'm sorry. True repentance takes action. True repentance takes a change of heart. You know, we've talked about this word repent before when we were in, New Test- in the New Testament and I think in 2 Peter. And this word in the Koine Greek, repent, it's metaneo. And metaneo, literally it means to, to change one's mind. Metaneo means to think differently. It means to change directions, to live differently. And that's what we see here with the people. They repented. They confessed their sins. They submitted themselves to God and they destroyed the things that were leading them away from God. Now this morning, we've been all over the place here in Judges chapter 10. A little typology, a little etymology, a little entomology, the study of bugs, a little genealogy, a little Christology. And what are our takeaways? Number one, Jesus is our tolaf. He is our defender and our deliverer. He is the one who went to the cross to die, to shed his blood, to deliver us 
from the penalty of our sins. As Isaiah says, though our sins were as scarlet, now they are as white as snow. Though they were as crimson, now they are as wool. Number two, live for God. Live a quiet, peaceable life, faithfully serving the Lord, and then go die. Get to heaven and hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Number three, when you sin, repent. Get back up and keep walking with the Lord. And lastly, when the enemy brings condemnation, when the enemy is whispering lies into your ear, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're a terrible person. In a sense, you could agree with them. I am. I, I, I'm much worse than that. You don't even know. But I am his. I am his and he is mine. When he starts to whisper those lies of condemnation, you can remind old Slewfoot, I've been purchased. I've been redeemed. I am bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, again, another kind of weird passage of scripture, but so many great lessons for us, Lord. And we pray you'd help us to, to take those four things that we just discussed and to apply them to our lives, Lord. And help us to remember that, that in you, we are worthy and we're lovable and that we're clean, Lord. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray those things in your name, Jesus. Amen.